We have a new month. We have a new year. We have a new week. And now we have a new topic. question one topic multiple perspectives for each one you are listening to the young catholic podcast i wonder if you guys could just hear my shoulder pop because i just rearranged my seating okay wow that was, that was really loud i don't know if you picked up on that if he did maybe i should go see a doctor okay hello hello everyone thanks so much for tuning in nothing like a new topic to freshen things up a bit am i right the new topic for the next few weeks is drumroll why is the Blessed Mother important to us as Catholics? I can feel the weight of this question as I'm speaking it. Don't worry, don't worry. I absolutely can. There's so much to talk about in regards to Jesus' mother, and the next few weeks we'll be scratching the surface. Follow us on Instagram at theyoungcatholic underscore podcast, and give us a five-star rating on iTunes, so that way more people will find the show. Thank you so much to those of you who have sent me your questions. You can submit your questions to me to ask on the show on our website, which is tycpodcast.com. At the end of the day, your questions are what is going to keep this podcast going. Remember, after you submit your question or questions, you won't be secretly signed up for anything. So don't let the email portion of the form keep you from sending questions. So who do I speak to? Well, today and next week, we will be listening to Father Jeffrey Montz, who is Director of Spiritual Formation, Spiritual Director, and Professor of Theology at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. Father Montz is a native of the Archdiocese of New Orleans. He grew up in Chalmette, where he was involved from a young age in his home parish, Our Lady of Prompt Sucker. The faithful witness of his parents helped to lead him to develop a personal relationship with God and to foster within him a sense of vocation to the priesthood from a young age. He attended Archbishop Hannon High School and upon graduation entered into seminary formation at St. Joseph Seminary College. After graduating from this college in 2004 with a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, Father Montz continued his seminary formation at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, where he received a Master's of Divinity in 2008. That same year, Father Montz was ordained a priest of the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Following ordination, Father Montz served the Archdiocese as parochial vicar of three different parishes over the span of five years, with one year being spent part-time in the diocesan office of worship. In 2013, he was sent to Rome to pursue a licentiate in spiritual theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Wow, I'm kind of jealous. Having completed his licentiate in the summer of 2015, Father Mons joined the full-time faculty of Notre Dame Seminary. How cool is he? He was so much fun to talk to. So, let's dive in.
Okay. Well, Father Mons, thank you so much for letting me come speak with you and hang out with you this morning. Um, what I want to first start off with is this question. As Catholics, why do we refer to Mary as our mother and as queen? Sure. So to take that away. No, thank you. So I think there are, you, know, you could maybe be several answers to that question. Uh, but the obvious sort of perspective is that we speak of Mary as the mother of God, Mary as the mother of Jesus. And so then we're wondering, well, how does that get to me? How does that tie into me? And I think this is where we have to have something of an understanding of our teaching of the body of Christ. So we refer to this idea of the, the mystical body of Christ, uh, sort of receive this teaching, uh, especially through St. Paul, uh, but this idea that we are all, in a very real sense, uh, united to Christ, and in being united to Christ in that sense, uh, that we share in that sense of his relationship with Mary. We, we know that obvious way of Mary being the mother of Jesus, uh, but in a, we would say in a, a mystical, in a spiritual way that she is uh, our mother as well. And we could extend that really to the to the, the church as well. Mother of the church is another way that we would refer to that, but it's in regards particularly to Mary's relationship to Christ and then our relationship to Christ. It's sort of a, a secondary sense in which we receive that that title. I know usually when you think of I know Jesus, Prince of Peace, etc., and I know as Mary being queen, I know it almost seems like she's higher up than Jesus. Of course, we know that that isn't the case. Or do we know, I don't know, timeline or whatever the case is of when Mary was first being called queen of the universe and et cetera? Sure. I don't, I honestly don't know uh, the exact sort of date or sort of the origins of that particular uh, title, queen of heaven, queen of earth. Um, and, and in fact, these may be more modern in terms of our specific uh, references. Part of that being, even those titles, king and queen, uh, have certain political connotations in a sense. And oftentimes what can happen with these different images or phrases that we use, uh, it gives us a, a point of reference to be able to talk about Mary. So in the Jewish mindset, there may not have been uh, as strong of an emphasis. Certainly there is, though, as we find in the, you know, King David, obviously, um, there's the the queen mother, these sorts of roles. And so I think it's, it's a fitting uh, sort of title for Mary uh, in light of those roles that were taken on by the Jewish people uh, preceding Christ, preceding the birth of Christ. And it gives people a sort of um, way of understanding her particular role, that there's a connotation that the word queen uh, brings to our mind, and uh, particularly in its ideal, what is that role of the queen? And so drawing from that Jewish heritage of the role, particularly we call the queen mother, uh, that Mary, in a very fitting way, fulfills that role uh, for us uh, in the church. Do we worship or venerate Mary? I know it seems, at least from from my perspective, that I know Christians who aren't necessarily Catholic, the topic of Mary can be kind of confusing. So if you can elaborate on sure. that. So we use, there are three different Greek words that we use to describe our relationship to the Blessed Mother, to the saints, and to God. So 
what we offer to God is what we call worship. So uh, the particular uh, Greek word there is latria, latria. So God alone do we worship. Right, so that's that's very important, uh, and and to understand what worship is, I suppose worship is uh, a submission of our entire selves. Uh, it's recognizing uh, He is God and I am not, um, but that is something that we offer to God alone. When it comes to the saints, when it comes to the Blessed Mother, the Greek word that we use is dulia. So it's, it could be translated a, a veneration, uh, perhaps a certain form of reverence that we show to the saints. Um, and then actually with, uh, with the Blessed Mother, the word we use is hyperdulia. So there's a distinction even between the way in which we venerate the Blessed Mother in regards even to the body of saints. Uh, and that is principally because of her particular role as the mother of God, that in God's providence, she has a role that no other saint shares, to be the mother of God, to be chosen by him, to be this human instrument through which he brings his salvation into the world. And so whatever the veneration we're offering to her in this sense is a way of honoring God's providence. And and I think that's the, the perspective we have to have on all of this, it's a real way of reverencing the order that God himself establishes uh, through salvation history, that while God could have very easily done all of these things purely on his own, we could think, you know, Jesus could have just manifested, right, just appeared in a sense, but he chooses to work through human instruments. He chooses to be born as a human child would normally be born, and then to develop and to grow as a human person does. And so in order to fulfill that, he needs a mother, and he chooses that particular pathway uh, to come into this world. And so I, I think sometimes the, the word we have to use here is it's fitting. It's fitting that we offer uh, this reverence to our Blessed Mother because of the pattern that God chooses for salvation history. Could he have chosen another way? He could have, but he didn't. Right. Why do we pray to Mary to intercede for us? Do our prayers not go to Jesus directly? Yeah, and and this is important to say, is it wrong to pray directly to Jesus? No, right? Is it wrong to pray for the intercession of the saints? No. And again, this is going back to what I was just talking about, this idea of the, the pattern that God himself has established, that he's established this particular pattern where he works through human instruments. And, and I think on the one hand, what this does is it, it really highlights for us the great dignity of the human person, that again, God could choose to work directly in every instance. He doesn't need a human instrument, and yet he chooses this as the pattern, and that very much highlights for us the dignity of the human person, that God will come to us through a human instrument, that God will allow us to be instruments of his grace, to be instruments of his healing, to be instruments of his love. Uh, and so it's really uh, a beautiful way of looking at the dignity of the human person that God would choose Mary to be this instrument through which he comes into the world. Gotcha. Okay, so 
just to make sure then if we pray to Mary for a particular need that we have, um, and let's say we pray to our confirmation saint, it's not as if if we pray to Mary, it's going to get quote unquote to Jesus faster than if we were to pray to a confirmation saint or anything like that, right? No. And I think that here we're looking more at it from a, a human perspective, that there's perhaps a certain comfort level for us that we have these certain relationships with saints that for one reason or another, sometimes I like to think of it as the saints have in a way found us, that they uh, sort of seek us out in a certain way. Um, and that's important to recognize, right? These are human persons who have been sanctified by God's grace, that they have their own free will, but that God invites them into a real relationship with the body of Christ. And so he gives them this role of being able, in a sense, to seek us out in some ways. And so um, as our lives unfold, I think it's important to pay attention to the different saints who have come into our lives, uh, those moments when we first learned about them, uh, the ways in which perhaps God was directing us through this human instrument to find a certain comfort, to find a certain refuge. Uh, and, and I think it's just a particular pattern in the way that God works. Again, God could, in each instance, directly intervene, and yet he has shown throughout salvation history this pattern of working through human instruments, which again, as I said, it, it really gives a great dignity to the human person. I think just on a very human level, though, it brings us a certain comfort to know that there's this other human person that is tangible, if there's an image I can hold on to there, if we think of you know, modern saints, for example, we have pictures of these saints, we have videos of these saints. Uh, so these are, are elements that, uh, as humans, body and soul, using the, the, the stairs of the body, if you will, to be able to move up to those things that we can't see. I think it's God's way in some sense of accommodating himself to our human condition and working with us, giving us this aid that helps us to go from what is visible to the invisible. Why is it important for us to have a relationship with Mary, do you think? Yeah. So, so again, I guess I go to that idea of, yeah, following this, this pattern that our Lord establishes, the role that he gives to Mary, I think he sets up for us um, a way, if you will, that he includes Mary in this plan, uh, and that Mary, um, you know, very early on, as we see in the history of the church, is already being looked to uh, as an intercessor, someone that we can turn to, uh, and again, looking at our, our human nature, that comfort level that we experience of being able, uh, just on a, a very basic level, right, to turn to a mother, in a sense, that that word for us uh, can have a very consoling connotation, it can be a very great comfort to us. And so there's a very human reality that God wants to give us these bridges, if you will, to help us to reach out to him. And so I think he's placing Mary there as this bridge that helps us uh, to reach out to him. Uh, and uh, I think from that, just that human perspective, it can be so helpful for us uh, to turn to Mary. Uh, and Mary has shown herself, if we look at the unfolding of salvation history, to be such a powerful intercessor. 
uh, so many ways in which through the lives of the saints, through the history of the church, uh, she really has interceded and intervened in very profound ways and so established this pattern that we can follow. Yes, absolutely. I know, and I know you can probably attest to this as well, and for most people listening, I would assume, um, sometimes with certain situations in life, of course, being able to lean on Jesus and lean on God the Father is so powerful. But to be able to, at some points, maybe cry out for our mom is also just as powerful. And to that point, I I think it ought to be something that is, that there should be a certain freedom there, Um, that it doesn't have to be this sort of robotic, um, I, I, I think of this in terms of the Trinity, for example, sometimes people will speak of the Holy Spirit as the forgotten person of the Trinity, and we'll want to emphasize this sense of almost as if we have to pray to God as Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in equal shares. Like we should, in an almost robotic way, divide up our time. And so, okay, I've given five minutes to the Father, let me give five minutes to the Son, now let me give five minutes to the Spirit. Uh, and, and it's not how it ought to be with God, and it ought not to be that way with the saints either, but that it ought to be a real free-flowing relationship. And recognizing that it's not only a relationship being initiated on our part, but also it's being initiated by God and through his instruments, the saints as well. And so if there are certain moments of our lives where we feel particularly drawn to the Blessed Mother or where we feel more drawn, for example, to Jesus through that image of the Sacred Heart, or we feel more drawn at a moment to turn to a particular saint that we have a devotion to, that that's perfectly fine. It, it's a real relationship there that ought to be open and free-flowing in that sense. Are you familiar at all with the Harry Potter series? Sure. You know, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. I promise you this is going somewhere. Oh, no. You... Um, I can remember being in high school and talking about the Holy Spirit. I think it must have been a certain holy day of obligation, and um, we had all gathered and I remember I was asked to talk about that, or at least that was the direction in which I was going to be giving the talk in. And I remember relating the Holy Spirit to one of the characters in the series who, not that this specific element is like the Holy Spirit, but the character, you're always kind of wondering, are they good? Are they bad? Of course, the Holy Spirit is good. But um, it was the fact that this character was such a pivotal character and for so long they're under the radar Mm-hmm. But they wind up being such an integral role in the series. And so I think just with what you're talking about, giving us that freedom to be able to reach out to any one of them and still know that our prayers are being answered and being heard is so important. Yeah, and with the Holy Spirit, it's so important to recognize that we can't pray without the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that. So every prayer that we offer, it's inundated, it's in and through and with the Holy Spirit, even if I'm not conscious of the Holy Spirit as he's working within me in that sense. Uh, And so that's where there, I I think, ought to be a freedom uh, in our relationship with the Trinity in that sense that not to feel guilty if the, the image that comes most frequently to mind is Jesus. As humans, that's easier for us to grasp in a sense, right? If I say Holy Spirit, right, we may conjure up an image of a dove, then we have difficulty 
being able in a tangible way to relate to that. Whereas Jesus, we're talking about a, a, another human person. And this is where I think, again, going back to the saints and, and particularly to the Blessed Mother, um, we have images to relate to a mother, to a woman. And, and through those images, we're able in a more tangible way to come into contact uh, with those holy things that ultimately lead us to God. And so I, I think it's a very beautiful way of God accommodating himself into our, our human nature. Why don't all Christians venerate Mary since she is such a pivotal figure as you've been talking about? Kind of a loaded question. Yeah, no, well, it, it's a, it's a, in part, it's a historical question in terms of looking at, um, as the various different sort of, we would say really, uh, churches split away from the Catholic Church in that sense, um, that there were certain elements of the faith that were lost through that. Um, now, some of the splitting away uh, was in reaction, we could say, to certain things that were off, certain things that were wrong. I don't believe our reverence and the role that our Blessed Mother plays in our faith is one of those things that we have off. I think, if anything, it's it's a very crucial aspect of our Christian faith, but obviously not all share that particular perspective. Uh, and so I think we would have to study the, the historical context of where and when these different churches were formed, what they were uh, in reaction against, uh, whether it's within the Catholic Church or events going on, even in some cases within their own churches, right? As we see this split that happens beginning with, with Luther, let's say, very quickly there's a, a disintegration even within these various groups that split off as well. And some of them will maintain uh, a greater reverence for our Blessed Mother, whereas in others, there's a, a really great distance there where she is kind of reduced. You know, she's she's honored in so far as she has this specific role in salvation history of being the mother of Jesus, but there's no sense of a real relationship with her. And so I think it's a it's a it's a big sort of historical question in a sense of why that happens, but it also ties into to the differences in theological opinions. This is also quite a large question. Why is Mary called the new Eve? I can remember being in high school and us diving into this. And I remember it just being so fascinating how all the different pieces of the puzzle just seem to fit together with this. But you can talk about that. Yeah. So th this falls under that category of theology. I mean, it would be others, but uh, typology. So where you have these different figures who we can see and they reflect back to characters within the Old Testament. St. Paul uh, sort of begins this with his reflection in several places on Jesus as the new Adam. So we could think of Adam's role uh, as in a sense, a certain father figure. Um, he has this particular role, uh, at least he was in divine providence, right, was supposed to have this role of being the leader uh, in the faith, but he, of course, falls. And so Jesus, as that new Adam, takes up that role, redeems it, if you will, with his grace, fulfills it perfectly in that sense. Uh, and so through this particular perspective we call typology, um, there's a, a tradition, this goes all the way back to um, 
church fathers, as we call them. So we're talking, you know, in the, the earliest hundred years of uh, the church's foundation, uh, that as the theology of the church begins to develop, as people begin to study scripture more deeply, uh, to begin to, to ponder uh, this whole mystery of salvation history, uh, they begin to ponder the, the, the role and the person of Mary. And one of the titles that is given to her through this uh, study is Mary as the New Eve. Now, what's important to recognize there is that it isn't uh, a direct parallel correlation. What I mean by that is obviously in Adam and Eve, uh, we're talking about a husband and wife. So we're not to understand when we speak of Mary as the new Eve, as the wife of Jesus, right? who is seen by St. Paul as the new Adam. But instead, it's more to look at the role of Eve in relation to creation and Adam. And so what would be the role of Mary as the new Eve uh, in relation to Jesus and to the people of God? And so part of her role uh, as the new Eve is the sense of being the mother of the redeemed, we say, that that in God's providence, uh, she's given this particular role of watching over, of nurturing, of fostering, of praying for. Uh, and, and again, it's it's a particular pattern that God chooses to use, I think, in that sense, to redeem what was lost, to establish for us a pattern that in some sense we might look to and we might follow. Okay. I always thought that was one of, uh, there's so many different it, elements. Oh, of exactly. I mean, I'm leaving out so much of what we call the typology and so many of these different uh, beautiful images that the church fathers really highlight for us in terms of how Mary fulfills that role of, of the new Eve. It's something you could definitely spend uh, many hours studying and reading the beautiful things and the ways in which the church fathers and even modern scholars will help to highlight some of these things. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say how I, there's so many different aspects of Mary that are just so fascinating. Even if you aren't necessarily a Catholic, I think just learning about her, it's just so interesting. And I know definitely with this question and with just this um, topic, it's just one of the most interesting ones just to see how God writes that story. How do we know that Mary was immaculately conceived? Because I know that that is probably, I'm, I'm assuming, one of the areas, too, where people who are Christian don't quite understand um, why us as Catholics believe that. Yeah, and especially what will happen, too, is, is people will say, well, you know, so this was 1854 when this particular dogma is declared. And so people look at that and they'll say, well, that, that, you know, the church just invented that in the year 1854, you know, uh, but it's, it's important to recognize that there's a whole context to this. And what I mean by that, so whenever the church declares something to be a dogma, it would have to be a teaching that has been in a long standing way been taught. It has to be present within the tradition. And, I say the tradition here as well because it's it's important to recognize as well as Catholics, we don't follow that teaching of sola scriptura, that we believe right, the scriptures grow up within the context of a church, and that church has a living tradition. And so as the church 
through her, her oral tradition, her written tradition, the lives and the writings of the saints, the patristic sources, we call them, all of these things begin to form uh, the body of the doctrine of the church. Um, but it's, it would, it would be something that is not necessarily written, you know, like we don't receive at the very beginning. Jesus doesn't leave us with this catechism and say, okay, here are all of the dogmas that are defined and here's everything that you have to believe in order to be a Catholic. But instead, he leaves the church and gives her this role of being guardian of the truth in this sense and of studying that truth, of praying with that truth, and of proclaiming that truth. And so it's a living tradition that is developing, and we as humans are coming to a deeper understanding of that by the aid of God's grace. And so this particular uh, dogma would be one of those that uh, it's, we could say, an embryonic form from the very beginning, and it's we could find like sort of uh, elements within Scripture that would certainly not contradict it, but would say this is fitting. That's one of the, the phrases that is used sometimes by theologians, it's fitting. Um, but it, it's something that we develop in our understanding of. It's not that we come up with uh, a particular teaching and say, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Right? But it, it's this development, this deepening of our understanding uh, part of what I've always felt particularly significant with the Immaculate Conception is its connection with the apparitions in Lourdes, France. So the, the dogma itself is declared in 1854, and the apparition in Lourdes happens in the year 1858. And Bernadette, St. Bernadette is the one right, who receives these apparitions, um, this relationship or this um, encounter with our Blessed Mother, and the priest, who Bernadette is in dialogue with as she's having these uh, visions, uh, says, okay, well, I want you to ask her, who is she? Because at this point, Bernadette just keeps referring to her as this, the lady, the beautiful lady. She, she doesn't yet know who, who is this beautiful lady, and the priest is trying to kind of test the spirit, so to speak, to figure out, is this an authentic vision? And so he asks her, well, ask her who she is. And when Bernadette does she tells Bernadette, I am the Immaculate Conception. Bernadette had no clue what that was. This was, a, as I said, a dogma that had only been declared four years earlier. It's not like, you know, they had the internet then where she's getting, you know, hot off the presses, a new dogma declared. So Bernadette actually had no clue, in a sense, what she's carrying in this message as she brings it to the priest. But when she brings it to the priest, he knows of that right, declared dogma in 1854, uh, and that served for him as a, a, a verification of this apparition in that sense. If God created Mary without original sin, did she really have the option to say no when the angel Gabriel appeared to her and said, you will be having Jesus the Christ? Yeah, so this is an interesting question because you won't find uh, universal agreement amongst theologians, let's say. I particularly think our more modern understanding of freedom uh, makes it difficult for us to understand this particular topic. So some will say, what they'll say is like, well, Mary, of course, she has a free will. A free will means you're free to choose whatever you want. And so Mary had the freedom to say no to God. What 
the tradition has long taught, however, is this idea of, we could talk about a prevenient grace. So grace that's provided to a human person. And this is the, the complexity of trying to understand this, that while it honors that recipient's free will, it at the same time moves the recipient's free will. I don't pretend that I can perfectly one understand that or be able to explain it in a, a simpler way, uh, but the tradition has long taught that in that sense we would say Mary couldn't have said no, but she was still completely free in her response to God. So it's this both and that we hold at the same time. If you look at some more modern perspectives, however, uh, some people will emphasize that idea of her freedom. She could have said, uh, but I would say that the tradition has not uh, taught that, but that instead the particular grace that God gives her while respecting her free will moves her to say yes to God's will. So this was part one of my interview, which means that next week will be part two. I hope that this half of the interview helped clarify any questions that you've been having on your heart, even though it's really, what, it's been about 30-ish minutes, so short amount of time, but definitely a lot has been covered. If this show is impacting your life and you would like to make a monetary donation, you can do so on our Anchor website, which is anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash T-Y-C podcast. So I will be coming back to you guys next week with part two. So I hope you are looking forward to that as much as I am. From one young Catholic to another, preach the truth as if you had a million voices. It is the silence that kills the world. St. Catherine of Siena. Mm-hmm.